Welcome back to Discover the Bible with Dr. James Harms. This is part two of a series of the land of Israel. What does the Bible teach? In part one, I looked at the biblical history of the land of Israel. Historically, whose land is it? It's important for us to remember that there has never been a nation state in the geographical borders of Israel today that wasn't Jewish. There has never been an Arab, a Palestinian, a Muslim, or even a Gentile state in that area. And thus, from the pages of Genesis to the history books of today, we see a link between the Hebrew people and the land of Israel. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back now and listen to that first. What we learned in part one will help us understand the issues that are being faced today. So let's begin with part two, the land of Israel. What are the issues being faced today by those who are seeking peace? The main solution for many is a two-state solution. Many across the world believe that if Israel would allow the Arab Palestinians their own state, then there would be peace. This is often repeated at the United Nations, on college campuses, and major news media services. Now for decades, discussions have centered around a two-state solution, one Arab and one Jewish. From the very beginning, this has been seen as the solution. Each group, Arab and Jew, treated equally and provided land for a nation state. Peace has not been experienced, not because the Jews have rejected this two-state solution, but history proves that there is no peace in the Middle East today because it's the Arab Palestinians that have said no. On five separate occasions, Arabs have rejected a two-state solution. What is their solution? Their solution is to simply eradicate Israel and the Jews that live there. Let's discuss historically these five rejections. Rejection 1. In 1937, the Peel Commission of Great Britain offered a two-state solution. The Jews were offered 20% of the disputed territory, that's one-fifth of the land, and they accepted the deal. They desired peace they desired a homeland. They desired safety. On the other side, the Arabs were offered 80% of the disputed territory, four-fifths of the land. Yet the Arabs are the ones who rejected the deal and kept the rebellion against the British going. That was rejection number one. In 1947, we see rejection number two. In 1947, following World War II, the British asked the United Nations to resolve the conflict. They had been, since the end of World War I, struggling with the conflict between the Jews and the Arab Palestinians. And so finally, in 1947, the British threw up their hands and asked the United Nations to step in. In November of 1947, the UN, the United Nations, voted to create two states, one Arab, one Jewish. The Jews accepted the proposal. The Arabs answered by launching an all-out war against the newly formed Jewish homeland. Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon joined the conflict. Tiny Israel won the war and went on with building their new nation-state. Much of the land that was to be given to an Arab state was occupied not by Israel, but by Jordan. That's rejection number two. Rejection number three occurred in 1967. In 1967, Egypt, joined by Jordan and Syria, attacked the nation of Israel. Their desire? Destroy the Jewish state. The conflict is now called the Six-Day War and it resulted in an overwhelming Israeli victory. The West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem fell into Israeli hands. For the first time in centuries, the Jews held control over the Temple Mount. Now, following the Six-Day War, 
Politicians inside of Israel debated over what to do with the land that had been recently acquired. There was one group who felt the land should go back to the nations that controlled them before. Hopefully, there would be peace if they gave back the land. Others in Israel supported the land going to the residents of the areas to establish a new state, a new nation, since they were beginning to call themselves Palestinians at this time. Before a decision could be made, the Arab League summit was held in Khartoum, Sudan, later that year. There, the Arab League submitted their three no's. There would be no peace with Israel. There would be no recognition of Israel. And there would be no negotiations with Israel. That was rejection number three. Do you notice the trend here? Each time, the Jewish nation, or the Jews, were willing to accept a two-state solution. Even at the very beginning, they only received 20% of the disputed land. It's the Arab Palestinians, or the Arab League, that refuses to accept a two-state solution. Decades later, we would see the fourth rejection. In 2000, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak met with Palestinian Liberation Organization leader Yasser Arafat to conclude a new two-state plan. Israel offered a new Palestinian state, all of Gaza, 94% of the West Bank, and East Jerusalem as its capital. After two weeks of negotiations, Yasser Arafat said no to everything, and thus instead of peace, Arab Palestinians sent waves of suicide bombers into Israel that killed thousands and maimed thousands more. That was the fourth rejection. The fifth rejection occurred in 2008. In 2008, Israel offered a two-state option once again. Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert offered an even better deal to the Arab Palestinians than what was offered eight years before. In 2008, the Palestinians were offered all of Gaza, 94% of the West Bank, East Jerusalem as its capital, plus additional lands. The Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, turned the deal down. That's rejection number five. So what can we learn from history? Yes, a two-state solution would create a state for Arab Palestinians in the West Bank and along the Gaza Strip. For decades, Israel has supported a two-state solution. But today, Hamas is the ruling power in Gaza. Hamas rejects the two-state solution and is sworn to Israel's destruction. And so the main issue faced today in the Middle East is the possibility of a two-state solution. Five separate times, Israel has said yes. Five separate times, the Arab Palestinians have said no. The next issue that must be faced are the Jewish settlements built on land following the Six-Day War in 1967. These are currently in dispute between Israel, Arab Palestinians, and the United Nations. Israel claims the land due to their being attacked and gaining the land in their victory. Israel also claims historical and biblical ties to the land. Another issue that must be faced, what to do with East Jerusalem. Arab Palestinians are demanding that East Jerusalem, which includes the sacred sites for Muslims, Jews, and Christians, be the capital of their state. Historically, Israel offered East Jerusalem and offers for a two-state solution, but these offers, once again, have been rejected by the Arab Palestinians. Currently, Jewish ownership of East Jerusalem is not recognized internationally. And then there's another issue that must be faced, and that is that there are millions of refugees that need assistance. Today, Palestinian officials claim that there are over 5 million Palestinian refugees, mainly descendants of those who fled in 1948. According to the Palestinians, these refugees live in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, 
the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and Gaza. About half of registered refugees remain stateless, and many live in crowded camps. Palestinians demand that refugees should be allowed to return along with millions of their descendants. Israel says any settlement of Palestinian refugees must occur outside of its borders. What Israel wants to make sure is this. The children, even the adults that have lived in these areas, especially the Gaza Strip, not be allowed into Israel proper. Why is that? Because from that area have come waves upon waves of terrorists. For generations, Palestinian children have been influenced to hate Israel, to despise Jews, to seek their total annihilation. No sane country would open up the borders and allow people who hate them and who despise them to come in and live among them. That is one of the issues, what to do with the refugees. If you look closely, you will also see that the plight of the Palestinian refugees is not simply because there are so many impoverished and in camps, but because it is a reason for Palestinian leadership to request funds and aid from countries and the United Nations. Over the past few decades, millions if not billions of dollars have been sent to aid the refugees. Much of what has been donated to provide for the refugees has been stolen and used to enrich the leadership of the Palestinians. Here's the bottom line. The Arab and Muslim world refuse to accept a nation of Israel. Period. The three no's of the Arab League summit in 1967 continue to this day. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with Israel. To truly understand the conflict, you must understand the ultimate goal of the Arab and Muslim world. Islam is not simply a religion seeking peaceful cohabitation with others. Islam is focused long-term on the establishment of a global caliphate. Thus, the conflict in Gaza today is not simply about a two-state solution, control over the Temple Mount, or care for refugees. The conflict continues because of a desire for Muslims to eradicate Israel, slaughter all the Jews, and establish the world dominance of Islam. The state of Israel and its leadership are not to be blamed for the violence and the plight of the refugees. Israel must either keep defending herself or face destruction and the massacre of the Jewish people. Israel has no other choice. It has been said that if Israel laid down their weapons, they would be destroyed. But if the Arab Persian Muslims laid down their weapons, there would be peace. That reality must be considered in any negotiation, right now and in the future. And so, a call for a ceasefire now, after October 7, 2023, is forgetting that there was a ceasefire in place on October 6, 2023. Historically and morally, Israel must be allowed to defend itself and its people. In any other country, the citizens would demand their leaders do the same. History books make clear what the history of Israel has been since 1948. They have struggled, surrounded by enemies. But what about their future? For the future, we turn not to talking heads of the media. We turn not to retired generals. Nor do we turn to the United Nations for their perspective. Instead, if you want to learn about the future of Israel, you turn to the Bible. To have any hope of grasping the future, we must turn to the only sure source of information, and that is God's holy word. The Bible provides clear evidence that God has watched over the nation of Israel. In God's word, we see evidence of Bible prophecies already fulfilled in the past, and that gives us hope for the complete fulfillment of the Bible's prophecies in the future. Here's a list of 10 past and future prophecies found in God's Word. Prophecy number one, the Jewish people will be scattered. 
The Bible states that the Jewish people would be scattered across the earth because of their disobedience, and they would be driven from their homeland and forced to live in foreign lands where they would be persecuted. Here's Ezekiel 36, 18 and 19. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. A quick look at history proves that this prophecy came true. The Jewish people were chased out of ancient Israel. They were carried away as captives from their homeland. They lost their right to govern their homeland, and instead, they had to make their homes in numerous foreign nations. Many people think of the Jewish diaspora or dispersion as beginning with the victory of Babylon and the resulting captivity of the Jews. However, the Jews were not truly scattered until the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D. 70 at the hands of Rome. It was after that event that the Jews truly began to be scattered to the winds. And for centuries, the Jewish people had no homeland. Instead, they made their lives in foreign lands, and there are Jewish communities in nearly every country on the planet. Prophecy 2. The people of Israel will be preserved through dispersion and persecution. Ezekiel 11.16 Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Few people have ever been as commonly hated or openly persecuted as the Jews. The Egyptians wanted their decrease. Naaman in the book of Esther wanted them dead. The Romans wanted them forgotten and scattered. Medieval Europe feared and loathed them. Jewish communities were destroyed by crusaders and Muslims alike. And then we see in the last century, Germany initiated their own solution, the Holocaust. Sadly, anti-Semitism is making its appearance today with the protest and violence against Israel and Jews around the world. Hatred toward the Jews is still alive and well in much of the world today, especially in the Middle East. But despite being surrounded by enemies on all sides, and often being badly outnumbered, Jews have managed to preserve their cultural and religious identity for nearly 2,000 years without a homeland. Most cultures, when faced with similar circumstances, would have died off and be known only by historians. Think about it. When was the last time you met a Philistine, an Edomite, or an Ammonite? Prophecy 2 has been fulfilled. The people of Israel have been preserved through dispersion and persecution. Prophecy 3 the Jews would return to the land of promise. The Bible prophesies that the, the Jews would be driven out of the Holy Land, but that they would one day return to the land of promise. Isaiah eleven twelve, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Listen to Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Today we can find Jewish communities in just about every country in the world. And for the last 100 years plus, more and more are returning to Israel. The term used for the return of the Jews to the promised land is Aliyah. Aliyah is the Hebrew word meaning ascent. It's used to describe the process of immigrating to Israel. Jews of all ages and backgrounds are now eligible for citizenship under Israel's Law of Return, signed in 1950. What's also interesting, in the book of Psalms, you will find a segment called the Psalms of Ascent. They were sung by travelers as they traveled to Jerusalem for the holy days. In the Jewish mind, Whenever you went to Jerusalem, you went up, you ascended into Jerusalem. And thus the Aliyahs are a celebration of ascending to Jerusalem. And yes, the Jews have come back. In 70 years, 
the Jewish population of Israel has grown from 500,000 to over 7 million. The descendants of Jacob are at last able to return to the land that they were promised by God. They make their way to Israel from just about every country on earth, and this is in fulfillment of the Bible prophecy. Prophecy 4. The land of promise would be restored. Biblical prophecies in the book of Ezekiel imply that Israel would be a sorry state when the Jews finally returned to their homeland. Towns would have been leveled and the land would be desolate. Zechariah 7, 13 and 14. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. That's Zechariah 7, 13 and 14. Now listen to Deuteronomy 29, 22 and 28. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out to the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. The Bible is clear that as the people of Israel were thrown out of the land, the land grew desolate. Centuries after the dispersion of the Israelites in A.D. 70, a young man on assignment from a newspaper on the west coast of the United States made a trip to the Middle East. His name was Samuel Clemens, and he wrote about the desolation of the land of Israel. At the time of his visit, the Holy Land as we know it was simply a minor outpost within the Syrian province of the Ottoman Empire. Here's Samuel Clemens's description of the land known from the time of the Romans as Palestine. Here's what he wrote. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Also, Clemens wrote about Jerusalem, renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. The riches of Solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting Oriental queens. The wonderful temple, which was the pride and glory of Israel, is gone. And what about the people? Here's what he wrote. It seems to me that all the races and colors and tongues of the earth must be represented among the 14,000 souls that dwell in Jerusalem. Rags, wretchedness, poverty, and dirt abound. It is clear that following the expulsion of the people of Israel from the land, the land fell desolate. But the Bible also prophesies that the Jews would return to the land and the land and cities would be renewed. Ezekiel 36, 33-36 Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around shall know that I am the Lord God. I have rebuilt the ruined places, 
and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. When the state of Israel was established, this was more or less the case. Two world wars had left most of human civilization damaged, and the actual land of Israel itself was truly desolate. A large percentage of the land was either desert or covered in swamps filled with malaria-carrying mosquitoes. According to the prophecies in Ezekiel, the once ruined land would become like the Garden of Eden. And in terms of agriculture, Israel has done exactly that. Israel has some of the most advanced agricultural technology in the world. And the Israelis have used that technology to become one of the few countries that exports more food than they import. The land of Israel has indeed become, like prophecy states, like the Garden of Eden. Prophecy 5. Jerusalem would be reclaimed by the Jews. In Micah 4, 6-7 we read, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now and forever. And then in Zechariah 8, 7 and 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. History teaches us that Jerusalem was in Gentile hands from 70 A.D. to 1948. For much of that time, Jews remained living inside the holy city's borders, but it remained under the control of other nations and people. For many years, it was ruled by Rome. Then it was taken over by Muslims. After that, Jerusalem was held by Christian crusaders. And then it went back and forth between Muslim and Christian crusaders for a time. Later, it was held by the Ottoman Empire and then Great Britain following World War I. Even after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, Jerusalem was not truly back in Jewish hands. It was not until June 1967 that the city that was the center of the Jewish world was once again controlled by those that built it. When the Israelis took back East Jerusalem from Jordan and reunited the city, it was the first time the city of David had been held by the Jews in nearly 1900 years. The prophecy that Jerusalem would be reclaimed by the Jews has proven true. That's prophecy 5. Prophecy 6. Israel would be surrounded by enemies. That's apparent today. But listen to Zechariah 12, 2 and 3. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. There is no question that the Arab nations of the Middle East loathe Israel with a bloodthirsty passion. In the first decade of its existence, Israel fought three wars to protect its existence. Many Arab and Persian Muslim politicians and leaders speak openly about their desire for the destruction of Israel. Terrorists regularly attack Israeli citizens. Rockets are launched deliberately at civilian targets. Palestinian organizations refuse to compromise with Israel during attempts at forming peace. Just as the Bible prophesied, the world wants nothing less than the utter destruction of the Jewish state. Israel exists in a constant state of readiness for their enemy's next attack. They must be ready. They must stand in defense. Their existence depends upon it. Prophecy 7 Israel will ultimately have victory over her enemies. Ezekiel 28, 25, and 26. Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards, they shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. While there is no doubt the nation of Israel must live each day ready for attack now, there will come a day when God will provide peace and security for the nation of Israel. 
Just as God has fulfilled the other promises made to Israel, He will fulfill the promise of peace. As believers, we are encouraged to, according to Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Prophecy 8. A counterfeit Christ will offer Israel peace before the real Christ delivers on His promise of real peace. Daniel 9.27. And He, this being the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Today, sadly, Israel is not a country that trusts in Jesus. As a nation, they are not presently trusting in God, but are sadly and openly sinning against Him. Eventually, the Jews will find themselves alone and they will turn to anyone who can provide a promise of peace. In the future, the coming Antichrist will sign a covenant, a seven-year treaty with Israel. On the one hand, this will be a terrible mistake. But on the other hand, it will be a part of God's plan, what He planned and predicted that would happen a long time ago. This treaty will result in a temporary peace, and the Jews will build a temple and once again offer sacrifices as prescribed by the Old Testament. And you say, how in the world can they build a temple? Some naturally figure that in order for the Jewish people to rebuild their temple, some kind of peace would have to exist between Israel and the Muslim world. As long as the Muslims are dominating the Temple Mount, they would unify to annihilate Israel if the Israelis ever attempted to rebuild the temple there. Some paradigm has to change that will grant Israel permission. Many believe it will be the treaty signed with the Antichrist. Unfortunately for the Jewish people, at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, the Antichrist will reveal his true colors, for he will openly betray the Jews. The one who proclaimed peace at the beginning will turn against them in the end. The Antichrist will break the treaty which gave permission for the Jewish people to worship in the temple, and he will take over the temple worship himself. Whatever form the peace offered to Israel is promised, it will be short-lived. Only Jesus will be able to offer Israel the peace it longs and cries out for. And when does that peace arrive? Prophecy 9. The nation of Israel will accept Jesus as Lord. Romans 11.26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The final salvation of Israel is described also in Zechariah chapter 12. In the opening verses, the nation of Israel and its capital Jerusalem will be surrounded by her enemies. It will be a hopeless cause for the defense of Jerusalem, except except for the Lord's intervention. God will deliver the nation of Israel from her enemies and will destroy the nations that have come against her. And after witnessing God's protection the nation of Israel will turn to Jesus as their Redeemer. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Each individual in each family will mourn over the death of Jesus. Next, God will provide a fountain to spiritually cleanse the nation of Israel. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is going to come a time in the life of the nation of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem where they will turn to Jesus as Lord and as God. And God will provide them righteousness. He will forgive and cleanse them from their sin. Now, putting this verse into the chronology of the end times, according to Zechariah, I think Israel will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah shortly before the end of the Great Tribulation. And finally, prophecy 10. After Israel is spiritually restored, Christ will establish his millennial kingdom on earth from Jerusalem. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In the millennial kingdom, following the great tribulation and the defeat of Antichrist's forces at Armageddon, Jesus will establish his rulership from Israel, from the city of Jerusalem. The current state of Israel right now is in state of of tension, fear, uncertainty. But all of that will change when Christ establishes his millennial kingdom and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. That is the future of Israel. Now, knowing the scope of history as outlined in the Bible concerning the land of Israel, recognizing how the Lord has been in control of Israel from ancient times to today, Knowing the issues that have kept the area from finding or experiencing peace, the question then is, how should the believer in Christ respond? How should we deal with those competing opinions? There are many voices in the world today that hope to guide you in your decision. The question is, which voice will you as a believer listen to? Today, our world culture is firmly grounded in a postmodern world. According to the world today, the truth of any situation or idea can be molded and shaped to fit our feelings or our agenda. When in history has the general population been forced to accept lies rather than acknowledge the truth more than what is happening right now? You can think of just about every area of life and see the push to acknowledge and accept and celebrate the lie. Here are some of the lies that are being told. Abortion is not murder, but a health choice. Marriage is not simply between a male and female. God accepts you any way you are, and you can come to Him any way you please. Gone are the days, if they ever existed, when a person can trust what is presented as truth without verification. Today, when it comes to Israel, many in the news media, higher education, government entities, Cultural influencers and even religious leaders will provide their version of the truth to guide you into believing and sharing their narrative. Many powerful voices and influencers will urge you to take one side or the other. You will be tempted to make your decision based on the narratives, whether false or true, presented by the media. Instead, I encourage you to make your decisions and take your stand based upon what you have heard and read in God's Word. The following is a step-by-step guidance that we can follow from God's Word in response to the situation in the Middle East. Take the first step. Recognize that God is in control of history, especially of His people, Israel. Psalm 22, verse 28. For a kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob His allotted heritage. Judges 2, 20 and 23. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He said, Because this people have transgressed My covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And Job 12:23, He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. In these verses, we clearly see that throughout history, God has been in charge of the nation of Israel. 
In fact, God is in charge, ultimately, of every nation. As we look at the situation, first recognize that God has not lost control. God's plan has not been stymied. God is not shocked nor surprised. He is in control of history, especially His people Israel. Next, step two. I encourage you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace in Jerusalem is not simply safety from rockets, protection from terrorist bombings. The peace of Jerusalem will come when they love Jesus Christ. Pray for their salvation. Which leads us to the third step. Pray for all people to come to know Christ as Savior. The only hope for peace in the world is for the world to know the Prince of Peace. 1 Timothy 2.4 First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is truly God's desire for everyone to not only hear the gospel, but have the opportunity to accept the gospel. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. No matter where you are on the side of the conflict today, I believe God desires for you to be saved. God desires for you to trust in His Son, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. That's the most important decision in life, choosing Christ. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Throughout history, God has shown a love for His created beings. He desires to bless and not curse. He desires to save and not destroy. For those who are currently attacking Israel, the Lord God would offer them peace, would offer them security, would offer them forgiveness if they would simply turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Pray for all people to come to know Christ as Savior. And that leads us to the fourth step. Pray for wisdom and righteousness to guide our nation's response. At this time, this country needs more than anything godly wisdom demonstrated in our leadership. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Daniel 2.21 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The Bible is clear that God chooses and God allows individuals to reach levels of leadership in nations. He also gives wisdom and knowledge to those who have understanding. Let's pray for our nation's leaders. Let's pray for the leaders of all nations, that they would have understanding and wisdom, which means that they would see the world through God's eyes. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let's pray that God would, would lead our nation's leaders and that he would ultimately be glorified in the decisions that our leadership make. Step 5. Recognize the real battle we face today is spiritual, not physical. All too often, when we look at the videos of what is occurring, we immediately look at the humans that are involved in this atrocity, these atrocities, and claim them as the enemy. We need to understand 
That's not the real enemy. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle that is being waged in the Gaza Strip and in Israel, that's not the real battle. The real battle is a spiritual battle. We need to pray for God's control and God's victory in this spiritual battle. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit especially says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We must recognize that we are fighting a spiritual battle. And for those who claim to be believers, we need to understand that the temptation will be, and as believers, we need to understand that there is a deception that is coming that we must protect ourselves from. We need to remain in the faith. We need to remain seeking God's will. We need to remain in God's word so that we do not fall for the lies, not fall for the deceptions or the teachings of demons. Anytime you can celebrate the murder of a little baby, you understand that is evil. That is the deception of the devil. We must recognize the difference. We must trust in God's word to guide and lead us and not fall to these lies being spread by the evil one. Step six, remember God's not through with Israel. Romans eleven twenty six. lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There will come a time when Israel will be saved. Now, we live currently in the time or the fullness of the Gentiles. But I believe that time is soon to end. And following that will be the time of the Jews, the, the 70th week of Daniel. And in that time, God will deal with the nation of Israel. Trust God and trust Israel to the hands of God. He loves and cares for them. Finally, take the seventh step. Pray and be ready for the Lord's return. Matthew 24, verses 42 and 43. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Bible makes it very clear that there is going to be a rapture to come, a rapture that will be instantaneous. It will come in the twinkling of an eye, a rapture that will be a surprise to everyone on this planet. It will come as a surprise even to those who are longing and waiting and eagerly waiting for him to come. It's going to be a surprise for you. The main thing that we need as believers is to be ready for his coming. Are you ready for Christ to come? Following the rapture, Jesus will come again. It will be his second coming. In that coming, he will establish a millennial kingdom. But right now, the main issue for believers is to look forward to the rapture, to look forward to his coming for his church. We began the look at the land of Israel from the pages of Genesis. I think it's right that we end with the final two verses of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Thank you for listening to Discover the Bible with Dr. James Harms. This concludes the study of the land of Israel, part two. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and I hope you will share this podcast episode with friends and family. This has been a challenge 
but it's been a rewarding challenge for me as I've tried to explain what the Bible says about the crisis or, or the problems in Israel. If you are a believer, I hope you've been encouraged by what the Bible says about the situation and that you will look forward to the future with great joy. Yes, the Lord is coming soon. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to seek a church, seek a Christian friend, and find out more about what God says about salvation, about God's love for you, and His offer of forgiveness for your sins. And that's the key issue. Are you willing to acknowledge that you've sinned? If you're willing to do that, then salvation is available to those who will confess and seek forgiveness and trust in the Lord Jesus and invite Him into your heart. I encourage you to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life. I encourage you to make Him the Lord and follow Him. He promises the Holy Spirit will come and provide counsel for you. You have been given the Bible to guide you as well. And through the study of God's Word, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you too can discern the times and know God's plan for your life and God's plan for the world. If you would like to learn more about being a follower of Christ or have questions or comments about the podcast, you can contact me through email at discoverthebiblepodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. As always, it is a privilege to share the truth of God's Word with you.